Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Beginning in verse 14. Matthew chapter 17 and beginning in verse 14. And we're going to preach all the way through Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 this morning. And you don't think that's possible. But God does miracles. And so uh, perhaps he'll do one in our midst this morning. No, I'm just teasing you. But uh, on uh, June the 29th of this year, so just really at the beginning of the summer, we began a study in Matthew's gospel, and we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel, but we began a study here beginning in chapter 17 and in verse 14 that has carried us all the way through chapter 20 and verse 28. And in that study, in the overall title of that study is Living Together in Christian Community, we have encountered 12 important lessons, really critical lessons, for what it means to live together in Christian community. Now, it's been the summer, and uh, that means vacation time, and vacation time means that uh, you have missed one or more of these lessons. And these are not, uh, these are not optional lessons, these are, these are critical lessons. These are lessons that, uh, that Matthew records for us in, in really the, the last six months of Jesus' earthly life. As this new enterprise called the church is going to soon begin. And what does it mean to live together in community as a church? And Matthew has a number of lessons here taken from the last six months of Jesus that are important for us. And so what I want to do with you this morning is I want to review all 12 lessons. I want to review the 12 lessons. And the reason I want to review the 12 lessons is, as I say, that you have missed one or more of them. And uh, so I want to pique your interest. I want to pique your interest that you would go to the website and that you would uh, listen to the sermons you've missed so that you gain the lessons I also want to remind you, there's probably somebody here who says, no, I didn't miss any. I've been here for all 12 of them. Somebody besides me, that is. And, uh, and uh, it'll be good for you to review them. It was profitable for me this, uh, this past week in preparation to go through and review all 12 of these lessons myself. Beloved, one of the dominant themes of the New Testament is the importance of the local church importance of the local church. When you read the book of Acts and you read uh, the, uh, the work of the apostles going out and preaching the gospel of the resurrected Christ and God's spirit moving mightily and people getting saved, what you cannot help but notice is that following the redemption of people is the organization and enfolding of those people in local assemblies called churches. The apostles preached God saved, and then people were brought together in local churches. Why? Why? Why is that? The answer to the question could be given in many ways, but I think one of the most important answers to that question is because it is the local church that is the manifestation of God's saving power and presence among his people. It is seen in the assembly of God's people brought together by the saving work of Christ. 
Now, I was gone myself uh, for a week last month, and uh, Pastor Vince filled in for me, and, and as he did, he preached a really important sermon to you, and it was entitled, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. And in that uh, sermon, he brought out the importance of the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit in the local church, in the local church. Now, normally, when we speak about the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, we, we tend to think and speak of it in terms of individual relationship with God through his indwelling Spirit. And that is a wonderful and important truth, to be sure. It is the indwelling work of the Spirit of God that, that, that uh, is the reality of our new life in Christ. And, and among many, many important um, benefits of that indwelling Spirit... God's indwelling spirit is that he empowers us in our individual walk of faith. No question about it. But the greatest emphasis of the New Testament, and that's what I really appreciate Pastor Vince bringing out, the the greater emphasis of the New Testament is not upon our individual indwelling and individual relationship with God. It is actually God's spirit indwelling his church corporately. It is the indwelling work of the Spirit of God in the believers gathered together by God in a local assembly, the visible representation of the body of Christ. The scriptural metaphors are plain. Together, we are the living stones that form the temple for God's Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and following. Together, we are the local body of Christ, animated by the Spirit of God. Together, we live out our faith in community and are sanctified and, and conformed to the image of Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. So this is a very, very important and profound reality. Beloved, when God saves you, when God saved you, you were saved by Christ not to have an an independent relationship between you and God. God has saved you into an interdependent relationship with each other in a body of Christ that is seen as a local church. This is huge. Very, very important. That understanding is the theological foundation under the 12 lessons that Matthew presents here in his gospel. And they take on great significance, great significance for us as to, as to how we believe and how we live together as a local church. So, Very briefly, very, very briefly, I want to review those 12 lessons. I attempted to reduce each sermon to about two sentences and an application point. We'll see how we do. But to begin, what I want to do is I want to read this passage for you. So I want to begin reading the scripture At Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 14 and all the way through chapter 20 and verse 28. So follow along as I read. 
When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the water and often into the or into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself and saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? 
There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus answered, said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? 
She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Excuse me. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Hear the word of God. Beloved, six months pass between the events of chapter 17 and and verse 14 and the end here of chapter 20. Six-month period of time, approximately. The final six months of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ leading up to his ascent to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, and his Passion Week. Many, many things happened during those six months. But Matthew... That inspiration of the Spirit of God drew out these events for us. That we might learn some important lessons about living together in this new work of God called the church. First introduced in chapter 16. And Peter's great... Confession. And then chapter 17. And Jesus ascent up the Mount of Transfiguration. And the vision of the glory of the Messiah of God. These two events. The first prediction of his specific prediction of his death and resurrection and the birth of the church. The glorious vision of the ascended Christ form the background for these 12 events. So first lesson is found for us in chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And it's there that Matthew relates the account of a father whose only son was being mauled by a demon. And Jesus' disciples, were told, were, were impotent to help the poor young man. Jesus responded to that situation by healing the boy and then by criticizing his disciples for their vacillating and impoverished faith. We looked at that together and we said that one of the important takeaways is this. We cannot do spiritual work in dependence upon Natural resources. Big takeaway. We cannot do spiritual work in dependence upon natural resources. Following that, in beginning in verse 22 through verse 27, 
we looked at this and we called it a slave to all. And the idea here is that they're arriving in Capernaum. This was the place where Jesus was his home base. And, and they arrived back there in Capernaum, I believe, to, to resupply before their journey south. This will be their, their exit from Galilee. They're heading south and ultimately up to Jerusalem to die. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus again informs his disciples about his impending death and, and resurrection. And then while in Peter's house, we have this strange incident about a, a tax and a fish. And the basic idea here is that, that Jesus humbles himself. He humbles himself to pay an optional tax rather than needlessly offend his countrymen. Verse 27. Matthew gives us two really important examples here. They are examples of Jesus surrendering his rights in both his crucifixion and in this payment of a tax. Surrendering his rights and assuming the position of a slave. What's the lesson for us? It's simply this. We were rescued by Christ out of slavery to sin. And we were rescued into another wonderfully liberating slavery of serving the Lord and serving his people. A slave to all. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. No status, no privilege. We find out that while... The disciples were, were journeying from the, from the base of the Mount of Transfiguration back to Capernaum. That they had been arguing along the way with one another about which of them was the greatest. Later in Peter's house in Capernaum, chapter 18, verse 1, they, uh, Jesus questions them about what were you arguing about. And, and so they ask him to basically resolve the issue. Please arbitrate for us which of us is the greatest. Jesus responds to them in, in shocking fashion. He pulls aside a small child who in the first century was, was, the, was the epitome of one with no status, no privilege. And he points to the child and he says to his disciples, unless you repent, unless you turn away from your worldly and, and grown-up sense of, of, of social position and status, and actively seek and accept the position of lowliness, you will not even make it into the kingdom, let alone be great among the people of God. What's the lesson? It's simply this. We, as the children of God, must reject all worldly notions of status, worldly notions of privilege, and replace them instead with an active humility. A humility which seeks out and welcomes other followers of Christ. Lesson number four. Entitled, My Brother's Keeper. This section, uh, beginning in verse 6 and running through verse 14, is very, very sobering. Very sobering and, and very graphic. 
And Jesus is, is teaching in this section in response to the, the disciples' worldly attitudes. Their worldly attitudes about status. Their worldly attitudes about position. And he, and he transitions from a rebuke of them to uh, an important teaching about community responsibility. Specifically, what Jesus says here is, is that as his church is soon to be inaugurated, we as the members together of that church have a, have a very sober and serious responsibility to keep worldliness out of the church. And we keep worldliness out of the church by dealing with our own sinful tendencies. Dealing with our own sinful tendency, verses 6 through 9. Jesus goes on to say that we must be personally involved in the spiritual welfare of other believers. Verses 10 through 14. Why? Because they are important to God. And if they are important to God, they need to be important to us. Sober, sober lesson. Clean up your act. Care for one another. Big lesson. Spiritual care in the local church is not the exclusive domain of the elders. Each of us. Each of us has a responsibility to keep our sin from spilling over onto the body. Each of us has a responsibility to care enough to go after a straying disciple and to bring them back to the fold. We are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. Following this, we arrive in verse 15 of chapter 18. And I've entitled this Resolving Family Conflict. Resolving Family Conflict. It flows directly out of this requirement to pursue the straying brother. And Jesus here prescribes the method by which an individual who has been entrapped in sin is to be lovingly pursued with a desire that they would repent and be restored to the fellowship of the community of believers. This is not about how to kick people out of the church. This is about recovering. Sinners caught in sin. Now, Pastor Vince preached an extended sermon series on this, and it was entitled Evangelizing the Saved. Evangelizing the Saved. And it's, um, you have to go to our website to, to hear that sermon series, but I, but, I, but I want to direct you there to it. It was preached in October of 2013. So I've entitled this Resolving Family Conflict, but I never preached a message here entitled Resolving Family Conflict, okay? That's just the title I'm putting over this section of the Scripture. But I want you to go to the website. If you have not heard that series on evangelizing the saved, I want you to go there, and I want you to listen to it because it's critically important to what it means to live together in community as the people of God. What's the big takeaway from that entire series? It is simply this, that we should prayerfully and repeatedly pursue a brother or sister trapped in sin so that they might be restored to the fellowship. 
In the end, when all attempts at reconciliation have failed, we must recognize the reality that they have placed themselves in a position of one who has disdained the fellowship. They have assumed the posture of a person who is outside the family of God. Pursue them diligently until they do not want to be pursued anymore. That takes us to beginning in verse 21 of chapter 18. And a message we preached here called Our Debt of Forgiveness. Our Debt of Forgiveness. Immediately following this section here in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, on the process of restorative church discipline, Jesus is prompted to address the topic of forgiveness toward a repentant brother. Verse 21. Peter is the one who brings it up, and and Peter is asking about how many times he must forgive his brother, right? And essentially what Peter is asking is, how many times must I uh, repeat the instructions of verse 15? Going to my brother. How many times? And Jesus responds to him. And Jesus responds to him by pointing Peter not to a number of times, but to an attitude of forgiveness. He points him to an attitude of forgiveness. An attitude of forgiveness that is expected of one who has themselves been forgiven so much. Verse 33 of chapter 18. What's the big lesson for you and me? Because we have been forgiven by God, forgiveness is now our new way of life. It is our new way of life. We are called to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ without boundary or limit, save one. Save their lack of repentance on the part of the offending party. Back to chapter 18 and verses 15 to 20. Now, even in the cases of one who has not repented and thus cannot be given forgiveness, we must be still ready and willing to forgive the moment the opportunity presents itself. The moment the opportunity presents itself. We have a debt of forgiveness. A debt of forgiveness. Seventh. Lesson in chapter 19 and verses 1 through 12. We entitled that message, Marriage is Not Disposable. Marriage is Not Disposable. Now, as Jesus' passion nears, his enemies are seeking to embroil him in a contentious and divisive topic of divorce. They're trying to pull him in to trap him that they might discredit and or destroy him. But Jesus refuses to fall into their trap. And instead, he directs the conversation back to creation and God's original design for marriage. 
Beyond that, Jesus reveals that while God's law does permit divorce in limited circumstances, the reason such exemptions are needed is because of the stubborn rebellion and deliberate determination on the part of God's people not to abide by his original intent. So we worked through that passage. We said, what is the big idea, the big lesson for us? It was simply this. Our marriage vows are a public event. They are a public event. They are witnessed by the community of believers. And as such... We, the people of God, have a vested interest in each other's marriage and in helping each marriage to thrive, to thrive. We are in this together. We are in it together. Marriage is not disposable. Lesson number eight. Beginning in verse 13, Matthew chapter 19. We entitled it Valuing the Next Generation. Coming directly out of Jesus' statements here about celibacy in verses 10 through 12, Matthew introduces us to this short account of Jesus blessing little children. The disciples saw the children as an annoyance that needed to be run off. Jesus invited them. Jesus invited them because it is in these children that that we could see that they could see a a natural openness, a natural trustfulness, a natural responsiveness to the things of God that model what it means to be poor in spirit, poor in spirit. And so we said the lesson for us is that is that while children cannot give to the believing community anything of worldly value in exchange for the investment that is made in them, they are nevertheless a valuable community treasure. I love it when we celebrate the the birth of children here. They are a community treasure. Why? Well, for many reasons, but not the least of which is that they are a constant reminder of the simplicity and the humility that is essential for a follower of Jesus Christ. Those little kids are a great role model. Lesson number nine. Verse 16 of chapter 19. The deadly deception of Christian affluence. Time has grown short here. Jesus is soon to cross the Jordan River from the east side to the west and to make his final trip up the the backside of the Mount of Olives which will lead to his triumphal entry and his Passion Week. And there on the, on the east side of the Jordan River, he is approached by a, by a young, wealthy member of the ruling class of Israel. And we noted that this young man was generous. This young man was morally upright. This man was spiritually sensitive. This man was the very picture of religious devotion. And yet, he was possessed by a heart of idolatry that in the end caused him to sadly refuse to relinquish the kingdoms of this world for the cause of Christ. 
What was the lesson? It was this. We are an affluent people. And as affluent people, we live with the constant danger of looking outwardly generous while being possessed of a heart of greed and idolatry. We said it is not what you have, but what has you that makes all the difference in the world. The deadly deception of Christian affluence. Lesson 10. Beginning in verse 23. Redemption. Accomplishing the impossible. Accomplishing the impossible. As the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, Jesus turned to his disciples and and he delivered shocking news to them. He said to them, those that appear close to the kingdom of God are actually very far away. Very far away. In fact, they are so far away that there is nothing that they or anyone else can do to earn God's favor, to earn their way into His kingdom, to incline God to them at all. They, we, everyone, is entirely dependent on the mercy of God to reach out and save us in redeeming grace. What's the lesson? We said it was this, that there is always pressure to compromise that kind of a message. Always pressure. Always pressure to compromise the gospel. Why? To make it more palatable to the unbelieving heart because the unbelieving heart rebels against the notion that it can do nothing to earn favor with God. We said that the the temptation here is strong, especially strong, concerning family and friends. We want so much for them to be part of the kingdom of God. There is temptation to shave off the uncomfortable parts. We said we must resist this temptation. And we must prayerfully speak God's word to people. Trusting the Lord of the harvest to do his mysterious work. Redemption. Accomplishing the impossible. And that takes us to the 11th lesson. In verse 27, chapter 19, running all the way through verse 16 of chapter 20. This was a two-part message. It was entitled, Sacrifice and Rewards. The rich young ruler chose to cling to the kingdoms of this world rather than make the sacrifice necessary to follow Christ. But Peter and the twelve, they they have made great earthly sacrifice, and, and they want to know whether their sacrifice will be rewarded or not. Verse 27, chapter 19. And Jesus responds to them and and he tells them they will be greatly rewarded. Eternally, they will be rewarded by positions of leadership in Messiah's kingdom, verse 28. Temporally, they will be rewarded by the fellowship of believers, verse 29. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He goes on now to teach via a parable. 
And he goes on to teach that those eternal rewards will not be distributed according to human standards of fairness and, and sacrifice and hard work. But they will be distributed by a sovereign God according to a person's faithfulness to the opportunity that has been given them. What was our lesson? It was this. While we have no choice in our giftedness or our abilities, they come sovereignly from God. What we do with what we have been given is very much under our control and will figure into our rewards. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And that led us to our twelfth and final lesson beginning in verse 20 of chapter 20 and running through verse 28. The long-simmering dispute among the disciples about who is the greatest erupts again. And it erupts when John and James enroll their mother's help, Jesus' aunt, sister of Jesus' mother Mary, to come and to ask on their behalf for the highest positions of authority in his coming kingdom. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 20. When the other disciples uh, hear about this request, they react with great anger. And it leads Jesus to, to give them a lesson on what it means to lead in God's economy. Verses 24 to 27. And the lesson is basically this, that the way up is down. The way up is down. That we rise to leadership by serving. We rise to leadership by serving. A point that Matthew illustrates in Jesus' own words, where Jesus in verse 34 describes his own life mission as coming to die in order to ransom his people from their sin, verse 28. If even that one who displayed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration didn't come to be served, but to serve, how can we, his children, do anything else but? What's the lesson? It's simply this. As people living together in Christian community, we need to understand, we need to embrace the reality that the path to leadership is to gird oneself with a towel and to wash people's feet. John chapter 13 and verse 15. How do we pull it all together, beloved? Simply this. We belong to God and each other. We belong to God and to each other. And the more we understand and apply that truth here at Foothill, the more powerfully will be our testimony of the life-changing work of the Spirit of God. I leave you with Jesus' words in John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I has loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if 
You have love for one another. Let's pray. Our Father, may you do a mighty work among us. May your Holy Spirit apply his inerrant word to our lives, chipping and chiseling and sanding and burnishing, transforming us into the image of Christ. May you draw us together in Christian community. May you help us to come to a greater understanding of our responsibilities to one another. May we see it, our Father, not as a duty, but as a delight to be together in a body of Christ, one in the Spirit, united and intent on one purpose, using us, Father, in one another's life to grow together in holiness and likeness of Christ. May you do a powerful work here, For Jesus' sake, amen.